The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So it's a day since Donald Trump sounded the horn of rebuke as he folded his arms of steadfastness across his double-breasted suit of defiance. The North Koreans will sing lamentations of fire and fury, a phrase that Rex Tillerson said was in a language Kim Jong-un understands. Now, since Kim Jong-un literally does not understand the language of English, presumably the Secretary of State meant bombast. Kim perhaps understands bombast. Could be. I, for one, preferred a tamping down of the fire and fury message. It seems like some other institutions in America agree with me, though not all and not explicitly. I want you to listen, really listen, to CNN queuing up Rex Tillerson's remarks. Today, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says his boss is just speaking a language Kim Jong-un can understand. I think Americans... Did you hear it? No, not Tillerson's words. He's an institution that is attempting to lower the temperature. Talking about that sound effect going into the clip, the swoosh. Listen for it again on the way out. People should sleep well at night. With me now, Chief National Security Correspondent. Now, accompanying the swoosh was a graphic. This is the graphic CNN was using throughout the day. It was a glowering Trump on one side of the screen, a grim Kim on the other, and in between the words against a red background, fire and fury. Donald Trump's a great brander, and CNN, as ever, was his enabler. That is the institution I'm a little worried about here, the media hyping this nonsense instead of allowing the president room to wriggle out of what, strictly speaking, he promised would happen. And it wasn't just fire and fury. There was another visual image that it would be best if the president didn't believe he was beholden to. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the president's red line here, the red line he drew and has North Korea already crossed it, and how Kim Jong-un is likely to react now. The red line. Donald Trump did not say red line. He did not really mark a red line. It is dangerous if he believes that he is being held to the standard of a red line. Not that being held to standards seems to drive him. But with a nuclear standoff, let's not take any chances. Here was the Washington Post today. Quote, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. That was the Trump quote that the Post ran. And the post continued. Trump then once again alluded to Kim Jong-un's threats and reiterated that they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Still, from the post. In other words, it's the post talking. Trump clearly stated twice that any further threats, italicized, from North Korea would be met with a response that dwarfs any show of military power ever seen in human history. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Washington Post, Greg Sargent wrote that article, within his and their rights to offer that interpretation. Although I would I would question the clearly stating. He didn't clearly state anything. He never clearly states anything. But man, it is dangerous if Trump believes that this really is what he said and that this is the standard that he will be held to. That even a threat gets a bomb. Please, for the sake of what's at stake, let's take that red line and let's draw a, I don't know what the phrase would be, like a kind of quarantine around it. Or in the parlance of newspaper editing, let's put the kibosh on it. Stet. On the show today, 
from fire and fury to soil and silence. That's the spiel. But first, a man who would not be silenced, who spoke with his fists, his wit, and his lawyers. Muhammad Ali was the greatest, and now a new book looks at a period that made him just that culturally. It wasn't when he was a young man in Louisville named Cassius Clay. It wasn't later in his life when he was a benign symbol. It wasn't the rumble in the jungle or the thrill in Manila. It was the period when he was essentially banned from boxing. As he sought conscientious objector status from the war in Vietnam, Lee Montville looks at Ali in exile, an underappreciated period in the making of an icon. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When Muhammad Ali died last year, he was rightly hailed as one of the finest athletes America ever produced, and almost certainly the most iconic. Another word used, often used, was transcended, as in transcended sports, transcended America, transcended culture. How'd he do this? With his fists, his charm, his strategy, his luck? Lee Montville has written Sting Like a Bee, Muhammad Ali versus the United States of America, 1966 to 1971. So much has been written about Muhammad Ali's boxing. This is definitely the best take on the period when he was mostly something other than a boxer. Hello, Lee. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So the thing about your book that I found most fascinating is it's really a question of progress in the United States, how progress is made and how we can sketch out progress on the person of Muhammad Ali. Where America was when his case started and where it wound up becoming. So could you take me to 66 and when was the first time that Ali was in court? Yeah, in 1966, um, the war in Vietnam was pushing off the shore a little bit and getting amped up. And there were a lot of military veterans out there. And there, there seemed to be little reticence 
about getting involved in another war in Vietnam is as trumped up as the whole idea seemed to be. And Muhammad Ali had taken his draft physical back in 1964, just before he fought Sonny Liston, and he had failed it. And that was greeted with a lot of, uh, I don't know, skepticism because he was such a verbal guy and, you know, presented himself as such an entertaining figure. How could he flunk, not the physical part, the the, uh, mental part? Right. And uh, he took it again, and uh, he failed it again and kept him out of the service, and and he had been free from the whole worry about getting drafted into the army. What was really going on with uh, the failing the mental part of the physical? Do we know? He, he really wasn't a good reader. They later said that he was dyslexic. He, he just, he, he didn't do well on tests. And uh, he, he talked about all the, the mathematical tests and he, he didn't do well on those. Yeah. And that was true as you, as you detail in the book, that was true throughout his life. He'd later, you know, during this time that you write about, be cast in plays, and he could remember lyrics, but he just it was almost impossible for him to, say, memorize lines. Yeah, I, I think it was a great thing for him and that they never read because so much was written about him throughout his life and a, a lot of it kind of tough, but he never, he never read it, so he, he never really kind of argued with people about what they had written and what the whole story was, you know. So he, he had gone through that, and uh, the, the war got amped up in 1966, and uh, they changed the passing score for that the, the written test. And uh, he, he had a press conference the day that he, he was reclassified as, as 1A, and he kind of shot down the government and kind of sounded like a woe-is-me guy, which didn't play well across the United States of America. Right. And so then to land up in court as a conscientious objector, he was uh, already a member of the Nation of Islam at that point? Oh, yes. Yes. He had changed his name and he, he was an active member of, of the Nation of Islam. And uh, at, at first, he, he didn't say anything about, you know, that it was a religious thing that he, he didn't want to fight. He just said that he didn't want to fight. But the Nation of Islam had a history of uh, not wanting to fight in, in the white man's war, they would say. So he he was kind of plugging himself into that tradition. But for the fact, maybe, that he was Muhammad Ali, there were certain signs, and uh, I guess you could say statistically speaking, we should have expected him to actually get his deferment, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, part of the, the whole process was that they would appoint uh, a retired judge to hear your plea to be a conscientious objector. And they did that with with a a guy named Lawrence Grauman. Um, He was a 66-year-old retired judge in Louisville, Kentucky, never seen as a a big uh, civil rights person, pretty much an establishment guy. Um, And he heard Ali's case. And Lawrence Grauman went off to to think about it. And uh, the the overwhelming thought was that Lawrence Grauman was going to come back and say, no, you, you, you're not a conscientious objector. But he flipped the whole card and, and said, well, yes, I agree that, that this man should be given conscientious objector status. But his ruling was a nine, non-binding ruling. It was just an advisory ruling. And the just, Justice Department said, well, it's very nice what Lawrence Grauman said, but uh, here's what we say. He should be uh, putting on the green uniform and... Uh, starting to go learn how to march left and right. Well, this is why I talk about statistics. It seems that you document that it's extremely rare not to take up the advisory ruling. There were a bunch of other 
uh, Muslims and stuff who, who, who went through that. But in their case, the advisory ruling hadn't been on their side. But yeah, I, I would think it was extremely rare. And, and I think that's where it kind of focused in on just being him. So how long does the fight last? And what is hanging over uh, Ali's head if he doesn't join the army, which he never does? Yeah, it, it's five years in jail and a $10,000 fine. He had great legal assistance, you know, to, to fight it all the way. And uh, it wound up taking over three and a half years for all of it to, to, to kind of get settled down. You know, as someone who's been covering sports his whole life and as Muhammad Ali being just about the most famous American athlete of the second half of the 20th century, I'm sure you were familiar with definitely everything he did in the ring. But what did he do outside the ring during this exile that surprised you? Well, uh, the first thing he did, he got remarried. He, uh, he had gotten divorced, and uh, she was a bright girl, Brenda Boyd, and she and he kind of sat down to, to figure out what he could do. And she said, well, you can talk. And they made up a couple speeches, and uh, he, he got into the speech-making business, and he went to colleges around the country, uh, big and small, and, and they, they were kind of boilerplate Nation of Islam speeches, and they, they were controversial. But he, he would deliver a speech, and then he would do questions and answers with all these college kids, and they would ask him the tough questions, and he, he developed a patter, I guess you would say. So if you were paying good money to see what Muhammad Ali had to say, would you feel you got your money's worth after seeing one of these speeches? I would say yes, you know, because I, I think there was a, a buzz of expectation around every one of these that, that, that you were hearing from this radical kind of person who was going to talk. And the things he said were mostly about how the white man had kept the black man down and the Nation of Islam was very much against mixed marriage or, or all of that. Um, he would chastise black students for being at white colleges because the Nation of Islam's whole thing was that they didn't want integration. They wanted separation, but they wanted their own part of the world, you know, give us Nebraska or something. Yeah. How do you eventually fight his way back to fighting? It was a slow evolution of the way the public looked at him, I think. His court cases got strung out. They got all the way to the, the Supreme Court, and he was rejecting. It looks like he was going to have to go. And then they found out he had been wiretapped five times by the FBI. He could start his appeals all over again because of that. And so it got strung out and went on and on and on. And 1968, you'll remember, was just a horrendous year where, you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. There were riots across the country. And he didn't sound like such a rebellious force anymore. You know, the whole tenor of the, the country had changed. And as it did, there was more and more talk about him coming back to, to boxing. Finally, a, a guy proposed a fight for him in Atlanta, Georgia, of all places. And he fought Jerry Quarry. And a separate court case had been going on to get his license back in New York, which did happen. Right. So so Atlanta sanctioned him. He wasn't done with his uh, ongoing battle over conscientious objection, but that was a break when, what was it, State Senator Johnson intervened and he was sanctioned the fight in Atlanta. That was the first example of the dam breaking. And then from there, the other states saw that, okay, things weren't going to, uh, to be destroyed if he's allowed to fight. Yeah, I mean, the New York case was interesting in that that they had they had taken away his title because they said a felon shouldn't be allowed to box. Well, 
the, the lawyers went and looked, and, and there were felons throughout boxing. Everybody was a felon in boxing, it seemed like. And uh, the judge threw out that thing in, in a moment. Yeah, he's, he had a great re- legal representation there. The book quotes the judge talking about all the different kinds of felons and all the different kinds of uh, people who were uh, granted a waiver after uh, being you know, convicted of crimes. It does seem that he had good legal arguments on his side throughout and top representation. Why? Because the sort of person who's motivated by justice saw him as a cause that was just or because he was so charismatic as Muhammad Ali, people thought maybe they would make their name with him. I, I think there was some of all of that. Hayden Covington, he, he fell off the chase when he wasn't paid and he wound up suing Ali for like $240,000. And the baton was picked up by a civil rights guy, Charles Morgan, and he ran with it for a while. And then they got rid of him. And then the the National the Defense Fund uh, took up the idea, and there was there, there was a great debate among the, the lawyers whether or not to do it, because he, he wasn't really a civil rights figure. You know, he was uh, he, he was advocating segregation. He wasn't advocating integration. He was like the flip side of of Dr. Martin Luther King, but he was such a symbolic guy. Black America. Loved him because he stood up to the government and he stood up and, and he said, you know, a lot of those things that, that were really true about the way the black man was treated in America. Do you know if there were people who were on the fence, either members of the lay public or people who actually could affect his case, who were won over over time because of his forbearance? You know, it was a liberal conservative kind of argument all the way. And, and liberals were with him and conservatives, not so much in the great middle kind of moving slowly from from the conservative side to the liberal side in the end. Younger people convinced older people that he should get off the hook. Yeah. It is certainly true that it wasn't so much that he changed, it was that America changed and the attitudes against the war changed. But I just want to talk about that first part of that clause. He didn't change. That's to his credit. When this all started, there were so many people writing him off as not being able to see this through or, you know, just using these arguments to get out of his responsibility. Well, you tell me, it seems to me that he showed a remarkable consistency through these many years. Yeah, very much so. Um, The time when he was off giving the speeches at, at, at the various colleges, that was his golden time, I think. You know, I mean, he... He, he was a religious guy, and he was kind of the, the religious warrior. But when he got back into boxing and got back into money, the kind of warrior thing fell away, and his marriage took a, a bunch of hits, and he became a more worldly guy again. Well, he also lacked a lot of options. Like He needed them. If he abandoned his belief in the nation of Islam, his entire he'd be inducted. Well, yeah, yeah. But all the way through, I mean, people were offering him ways out. If he if he had gone in the service, he wouldn't have gone to Vietnam. He would have been like a public relations guy going around shaking hands. Uh, Done the Elvis thing. Yeah. Uh, he, he had lawyers. He wouldn't even have to be like Elvis. Elvis had to go to Germany. You know I mean? I mean, there were a lot of people that were going to help him if he just went ahead and uh, turned that way. So I think the conventional wisdom, when you look at how great he was and you look at the time, the his age that he lost between 25 and 29, you know, the prime of a boxer, 
um, maybe for heavyweights a little later, but certainly coming into his prime. So the conventional wisdom is what a shame. Think of all the fights he didn't have. Think of how this hurt his career. You know, we look at it a little like Ted Williams uh, fighting in the Korean War. Think what his stats would be otherwise. But you, you think a little differently about this. In Ali's case, all the great moments that came, the, that first fight with Frazier was just the biggest athletic event in the, the, the 20th century. And it, it wouldn't have existed if he hadn't gone through all of that other stuff. But he, he came back and he was a little slower and easier to hit. And, and that made the fights better, I guess. Yeah, probably contributed to his Parkinson's also. Probably so. I mean, when he, that rope-a-dope idea didn't do good things for him. Yeah, it happens to many a boxer with many a style, but that style of, you know, purposefully taking shots to the head cannot help. So I guess here's my last question. Muhammad Ali, well, starts off as an Olympic winner and Cassius Clay and then becomes a, a villain to much of mainstream America. And he dies and he's considered a secular saint. Uh, a second, you, you heard that phrase a lot. So does this show that the long arc of history bends towards justice or... Does it just do so for someone as charismatic and with the gifts of Muhammad Ali? Well, the thing about Muhammad Ali was he was already sick when he fought his last fights. The disease already had started, and he, he disappeared from boxing, and he just kind of wound down, and he, he didn't do anything wrong for the whole second half of his life, you know, and most of us do something wrong in the, the whole second half of our lives. Sting Like a Bee, Muhammad Ali versus the United States of America, 1966 to 1971. Lee Montville is the author and was with me. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you. And now the spiel. Yesterday, The Guardian reported that the U.S. Department of Agriculture is acknowledging a change in the climate of accuracy. Headline, U.S. Federal Department is censoring use of term climate change. Emails reveal. Went on to say a missive from Bianca Mobius Clune, director of soil health, lists terms that should be avoided by staff and those that should replace them. Climate change is in the avoid category to be replaced by weather extremes. Instead of climate change adaption, staff are asked to use resilience to weather extremes. There's more, as Stephen Colbert discussed. And the term reduce greenhouse gases has been blacklisted in favor of build soil organic matter. Do pants count as organic matter? Because today's news is making me build soil in them. I was wondering, who was this Dr. Bianca Mobius clune? One day, a humble, soil-oriented civil servant. The next, fodder for a late-night monologue. I puzzled over her background, her outlook, her role on this expurgation of the earth. What I found... In researching Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune was not a never-ending loop of contradiction and dereliction, but an agronomist in good standing, and what seems to be a dedicated civil servant with feet of clay, but also feet of hummus topsoil, the elevation layer subsoil. All right, what comes before the bedrock, anyone? It's regolith. Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune knows. 
She has a Cornell-trained PhD. She is the director of the Natural Resources Conservation Service Soil Subdivision. And she's an employee whose tenure predates Trump. A few of her presentations to the experts, to other farmers, are online. And I watched a few of them. And it does not indicate someone who is at all a climate change denier. I came across a slideshow she put together that was presented at the Fertilizer Outlook and Technology Conference. Motto, you'll party so hard afterwards, you'll need a dirt nap. So this Dr. Bianca Moby's Clune compiled slideshow features a slide showing spike in global temperatures, credits data from thermometers, tree rings, coral, ice cores, and the historical record. There's another page in that slideshow titled Addressing the Nation's Most Critical Issues Through Soil Health and includes a graphic labeled Climate Change, Adaption, and Migration. I watched presentations she gave in 2015, and she brings out those very same climate change slides. The audio is not great, but don't worry, the visuals are worse. But here she is talking about spiking temperatures. Here's that reference. Our temperatures are increasing, and between all of our models, we know that they are increasing, and we may not know exactly where we end up, but this is what that's looking like, and you guys are probably pretty familiar with this, so I don't need to drive that home. She was speaking in Gainesville, Florida. So yeah, the crowd knew from increasing temperatures and why. In that talk, she also referenced and recommended a book called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations by David Montgomery. The book deals frankly and honestly with the very real issue of climate change. Here is a part of the book, quote, the potential for global warming to affect agricultural systems is alarming. Most of chapter three in the book is about the effects of global warming. It's trenchant, it's mainstream, it acknowledges and worries about climate change. I didn't examine all of Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune's CV. And yes, I will only refer to her as Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune. It's too good a name to shorthand. But she seems steeped in science. She seems committed to improving our world. And she definitely seems like she's in a difficult bind. Remember the Gainesville conference 2015? So I watched another video from February of 2016, February 1st, less than two weeks after Trump was inaugurated. Guess what slide was missing? She still had the drought slide, she still had the population slide, she still had the water quality slide. I love a water quality slide. But there was no temperature slide. She still got pretty charged over Buxton silt loam, but hey, who wouldn't? Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune seems to be a good person trying to do her job, which includes, you know, her job saving the earth by literally saving the earth. But like a General McMaster or a General Mattis or better yet, uh, one of those non-political appointees who's a holdover from a previous more rational administration, she had to somehow find accommodation with the New World Order, which broadly speaking, if pursued, would leave the New World in much disorder. And Dr. Bianca Mobius Clune acknowledged in her email about the change in language that a new emphasis would be, quote, tolerated if not appreciated by all. And that's the reality of the situation. She is a soil scientist unable to simply call a spade a spade. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson, who will no longer issue flash flood warnings, but will decree a wee bit more wetness. Just producer Chris Brube will no longer refer to gale force winds, but will continue to refer to gale king. Dan Schrader helped us out today. No more talk of wildfires from him, but he does feel free in mentioning all the other characters in the Lego movie. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's going all ixnay on the Elting May ICA apps K. The gist, we will no longer mention rising sea levels. We will simply refer to Lake Boston. Upuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.